Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a classic science fiction novel written by the French author Jules Verne. It was first published in 1870 and is one of Verne's most famous works. The novel is known for its imaginative portrayal of underwater exploration and adventure. The story is narrated by Professor Pierre Aronnax, a French marine biologist who, along with his faithful servant Consal and a Canadian harpooner named Ned Land, embarks on a journey to investigate mysterious sea creatures that have been causing havoc in the world's oceans. They soon discover that these creatures are actually part of a technologically advanced submarine, the Nautilus, commanded by the enigmatic Captain Nemo. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is considered a pioneering work of science fiction and is known for its accurate and detailed descriptions of underwater life and technology. It has been adapted into numerous films, television series, and other media and continues to be a beloved classic of literature. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend you both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify and Apple Music. Chapter for the Red Sea. In the course of the day of the 29th of January, the island of Ceylon disappeared under the horizon and the Nautilus, at a speed of 20 miles an hour, slid into the labyrinth of canals which separate the Maldives from the Lacadives. It coasted even the island of Kiltan, a land originally coralline, discovered by Vasco da Gama in 1499 and one of the 19 principal islands of the Lacadive archipelago, situated between 10 degrees and 14 degrees 30 minutes north lat and 69 degrees 50 minutes 72 e long. We had made 16,220 miles or 7,500 French leagues from our starting point in the Japanese seas. The next day, January 30th, when the Nautilus went to the surface of the ocean, there was no land in sight. Its course was N and E in the direction of the Sea of Oman between Arabia and the Indian Peninsula, which serves as an outlet to the Persian Gulf. It was evidently a block without any possible egress. Where was Captain Nemo taking us to? I could not say. This, however, did not satisfy the Canadian who that day came to me asking where we were going. We are going where our captain's fancy takes us, Master Ned. His fancy cannot take us far, then, said the Canadian. The Persian Gulf has no outlet, and if we do go in, it will not be long before we are out again. Very well, then, we will come out again, Master Land, and if, after the Persian Gulf, the Nautilus would like to visit the Red Sea, 
the straits of Babel Mandeb are there to give us entrance. I need not tell you, sir, said Ned Land, that the Red Sea is as much closed as the Gulf, as the Isthmus of Suez is not yet cut, and, if it was, a boat as mysterious as ours would not risk itself in a canal cut with sluices. And again, the Red Sea is not the road to take us back to Europe. But I never said we were going back to Europe. What do you suppose, then? I suppose that, after visiting the curious coasts of Arabia and Egypt, the Nautilus will go down the Indian Ocean again, perhaps cross the channel of Mozambique, perhaps off the Mosque Arrhenius, so as to gain the Cape of Good Hope. And once at the Cape of Good Hope, asked the Canadian, with peculiar emphasis. Well, we shall penetrate into the Atlantic which we do not yet know. Oh, friend Ned, you are getting tired of this journey under the sea. You are surfeited with the incessantly varying spectacle of submarine wonders. For my part, I shall be sorry to see the end of a voyage which it is given to so few men to make. For four days, till the 3rd of February, the Nautilus scoured the Sea of Oman at various speeds and at various depths. It seemed to go at random, as if hesitating as to which road it should follow, but we never passed the Tropic of Cancer. In quitting this sea we sighted Muscat for an instant, one of the most important towns of the country of Oman. I admired its strange aspect, surrounded by black rocks upon which its white houses and forts stood in relief. I saw the rounded domes of its mosques, the elegant points of its minarets, its fresh and verdant terraces. But it was only a vision. The Nautilus soon sank under the waves of that part of the sea. We passed along the Arabian coast of Mar and Hadramaut for a distance of six miles, its undulating line of mountains being occasionally relieved by some ancient ruin. The 5th of February we at last entered the Gulf of Aden, a perfect fall introduced into the neck of Babel Mandeb, through which the Indian waters entered the Red Sea. The 6th of February, the Nautilus floated inside of Aden, perched upon a promontory which a narrow isthmus joins to the mainland, a kind of inaccessible Gibraltar, the fortifications of which were rebuilt by the English after taking possession in 1839. I caught glimpse of the octagon minarets of this town, which was at one time the richest commercial magazine on the coast. I certainly thought that Captain Nemo, arrived at this point, would back out again, but I was mistaken, for he did no such thing, much to my surprise. The next day, the 7th of February, we entered the Straits of Babel Mandeb, the name of which, in the Arab tongue, means the Gay of Tears. To 20 miles in breadth, it is only 32 in length. And for the Nautilus, starting at full speed, the crossing was scarcely the work of an hour. But I saw nothing, not even the island of Param, with which the British government has fortified the position of Aden. There were too many English or French steamers of the line of Suez to Bombay, Calcutta to Melbourne, and from Bourbon to the Mauritius, furrowing this narrow passage for the Nautilus to venture to show itself. 
so it remained prudently below. At last about noon, we were in the waters of the Red Sea. I would not even seek to understand the caprice which had decided Captain Nemo upon entering the Gulf, but I quite approved of the Nautilus entering it. Its speed was lessened, sometimes it kept on the surface, sometimes it dived to avoid a vessel, and thus I was able to observe the upper and lower parts of this curious sea. The 8th of February, from the first dawn of day, Mocha came in sight, now a ruined town, whose walls would fall at a gunshot, yet which shelters here and there some verdant date trees, once an important city, containing six public markets and twenty-six mosques, and whose walls, defended by fourteen forts, formed a girdle of two miles in circumference. The Nautilus then approached the African shore, where the depth of the sea was greater. There, between two waters clear as crystal, through the open panels we were allowed to contemplate the beautiful bushes of brilliant coral and large blocks of rock clothed with a splendid fur of green variety of sites and landscapes along these sandbanks and algae and fusi. What an indescribable spectacle, and what variety of sites and landscapes along these sandbanks and volcanic islands which bound the Libyan coast. But where these shrubs appear in all their beauty was on the eastern coast, which the Nautilus soon gained. It was on the coast of Tahama, for there not only did this display of zoophytes flourish beneath the level of the sea, but they also formed picturesque interlacings which unfolded themselves about 60 feet above the surface, more capricious but less highly colored than those whose freshness was kept up by the vital power of the waters. What charming hours I passed thus at the window of the saloon. What new specimens of submarine flora and fauna did I admire under the brightness of our electric lantern. The 9th of February, the Nautilus floated in the broadest part of the Red Sea, which is comprised between Soakin on the west coast and Comfida on the east coast with a diameter of 90 miles. That day at noon, after the bearings were taken, Captain Nemo mounted the platform where I happened to be and I was determined not to let him go down again without at least pressing him regarding his ulterior projects. As soon as he saw me, he approached and graciously offered me a cigar. Well, sir, does this Red Sea please you? Have you sufficiently observed the wonders it covers, its fishes, its zoophytes, its parterres of sponges, and its forests of coral? Did you catch a glimpse of the towns on its borders? Yes, Captain Nemo, I replied and the Nautilus is wonderfully fitted for such a study. Oh, it is an intelligent boat. Yes, sir, intelligent and invulnerable. It fears neither the terrible tempests of the Red Sea, nor its currents, nor its sandbanks. Certainly, said I, this sea is quoted as one of the worst, and in the time of the ancients, if I am not mistaken, its reputation was detestable. Detestable, M. Moronex. The Greek and Latin historians do not speak favorably of it, and Strabo says it is very dangerous during the Etesian winds and in the rainy season. 
The Arabian Edrisite portrays it under the name of the Gulf of Khazum and relates that vessels perished there in great numbers on the sandbanks and that no one would risk sailing in the night. It is, he pretends, a sea subject to fearful hurricanes strewn with inhospitable islands and which offers nothing good either on its surface or in its depths. One may see, I replied, that these historians never sailed on board the Nautilus. Just so, replied the captain, smiling, and in that respect moderns are not more advanced than the ancients. It required many ages to find out the mechanical power of steam. Who knows if, in another hundred years, we may not see a second Nautilus. Progress is slow, M. Peronex. It is true, I answered, your boat is at least a century before its time, perhaps an era. What a misfortune that the secret of such an invention should die with its inventor. Captain Nemo did not reply. After some minutes silence he continued. You were speaking of the opinions of ancient historians upon the dangerous navigation of the Red Sea. It is true, said I but were not their fears exaggerated? Yes and no, M. Horonax, replied Captain Nemo, who seemed to know the Red Sea by heart. That which is no longer dangerous for a modern vessel, well-rigged, strongly built, and master of its own course, thanks to obedient steam, offered all sorts of perils to the ships of the ancients. Picture to yourself those first navigators venturing in ships made of planks sewn with the cords of the palm tree, saturated with the grease of the sea dog, and covered with powdered resin. They had not even instruments wherewith to take their bearings, and they went by guess amongst currents of which they scarcely knew anything. Under such conditions shipwrecks were, and must have been, numerous. But in our time, Steamers running between Suez and the South Seas have nothing more to fear from the fury of this gulf in spite of contrary trade winds. The captain and passengers do not prepare for their departure by offering propitiatory sacrifices and, on their return, they no longer go ornamented with wreaths and gilt fillets to thank the gods and the neighboring temple. I agree with you, said I and steam seems to have killed all gratitude in the hearts of sailors. But, Captain, since you seem to have especially studied this sea, can you tell me the origin of its name? There exist several explanations on the subject, M. Moronex. Would you like to know the opinion of a chronicler of the 14th century? Willingly. This fanciful writer pretends that its name was given to it after the passage of the Israelites when Pharaoh perished in the waves which closed at the voice of Moses. A poet's explanation, Captain Nemo, I replied, but I cannot content myself with that. I ask you for your personal opinion. Here it is, M. Moronex. According to my idea, we must see in this appellation of the Red Sea a translation of the Hebrew word Edom, and if the ancients gave it that name, it was on account of the particular color of its waters. But up to this time I have seen nothing but transparent waves and without any particular color. 
Very likely, but as we advance to the bottom of the gulf, you will see this singular appearance. I remember seeing the Bay of Tor entirely red, like a sea of blood. And you attribute this color to the presence of a microscopic seaweed? Yes. So, Captain Nemo, it is not the first time you have overrun the Red Sea on board the Nautilus? No, sir. As you spoke a while ago of the passage of the Israelites and of the catastrophe to the Egyptians, I will ask whether you have met with the traces under the water of this great historical fact. No, sir, and for a good reason. What is it? It is that the spot where Moses and his people passed is now so blocked up with sand that the camels can barely bait their legs there. You can well understand that there would not be water enough for my Nautilus. And this spot? I asked. The spot is situated a little above the Isthmus of Suez, in the arm which formerly made a deep estuary when the Red Sea extended to the Salt Lakes. Now, whether this passage were miraculous or not, the Israelites, nevertheless, crossed there to reach the Promised Land and Pharaoh's army perished precisely on that spot, and I think that excavations made in the middle of the sand would bring to light a large number of arms and instruments of Egyptian origin. That is evident, I replied, and for the sake of archaeologists let us hope that these excavations will be made sooner or later when new towns are established on the isthmus after the construction of the Suez Canal, a canal, however, very useless to a vessel like the Nautilus. Very likely, but useful to the whole world, said Captain Nemo. The ancients well understood the utility of a communication between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean for their commercial affairs, but they did not think of digging a canal direct and took the Nile as an intermediate. Very probably the canal which united the Nile to the Red Sea was begun by Sesostris, if we may believe tradition. One thing is certain, that in the year 615 before Jesus Christ, Nikos undertook the works of an elementary canal to the waters of the Nile across the plain of Egypt, looking towards Arabia. It took four days to go up this canal, and it was so wide that two triremes could go abreast. It was carried on by Darius, the son of Histasps, and probably finished by Ptolemy II. Strabo saw it navigated, but its decline from the point of departure near Bubastes to the Red Sea was so slight that it was only navigable for a few months in the year. This canal answered all commercial purposes to the age of Antonius when it was abandoned and blocked up with sand. Restored by order of the Caliph Omar, it was definitely destroyed in 761 or 762 by Caliph Al-Mansur, who wished to prevent the arrival of provisions to Muhammad bin Abdullah, who had revolted against him. During the expedition into Egypt, your General Bonaparte discovered traces of the works in the desert of Suez, and, surprised by the tide, he nearly perished before regaining Hajarot at the very place where Moses had encamped 3,000 years before him. Well, Captain, what the ancients dared not undertake, this junction between the two seas, 
which will shorten the road from Cadiz to India, M. Lesseps has succeeded in doing, and before long he will have changed Africa into an immense island. Yes, M. Moranex, you have the right to be proud of your countrymen. Such a man brings more honor to a nation than great captains. He began, like so many others, with disgust and rebuffs, but he has triumphed, for he has the genius of will. And it is sad to think that a work like that, which ought to have been an international work and which would have sufficed to make a reign illustrious, should have succeeded by the energy of one man. All honor to him, Lesseps. Yes. Honor to the great citizen, I replied, surprised by the manner in which Captain Nemo had just spoken. Unfortunately, he continued, I cannot take you through the Suez Canal, but you will be able to see the long jetty of port set after tomorrow, when we shall be in the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean? I exclaimed. Yes, sir. Does that astonish you? What astonishes me is to think that we shall be there the day after tomorrow. Indeed? Yes, Captain, although by this time I ought to have accustomed myself to be surprised at nothing since I have been on board your boat. But the cause of this surprise? Well, it is the fearful speed you will have to put on the Nautilus. If the day after tomorrow she is to be in the Mediterranean, having made the round of Africa, and doubled the Cape of Good Hope. Who told you that she would make the round of Africa and double the Cape of Good Hope, sir? Well, unless the Nautilus sails on dry land and passes above the isthmus. Or beneath it, M. Moronex. Beneath it? Certainly replied Captain Nemo quietly. A long time ago nature made under this tongue of land what man has this day made on its surface. What? Such a passage exists? Yes, a subterranean passage, which I have named the Arabian Tunnel. It takes us beneath Suez and opens into the Gulf of Pelusium. But this isthmus is composed of nothing but quicksands? to a certain depth, but at 55 yards only there is a solid layer of rock. Did you discover this passage by chance? I asked more and more surprised. Chance and reasoning, sir, and by reasoning even more than by chance. Not only does this passage exist, but I have profited by it several times. Without that I should not have ventured this day into the impassable Red Sea. I noticed that in the Red Sea and in the Mediterranean there existed a certain number of fishes of a kind perfectly identical. Certain of the fact, I asked myself was it possible that there was no communication between the two seas? If there was, the subterranean current must necessarily run from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean from the sole cause of difference of level. I caught a large number of fishes in the neighborhood of Suez. I passed a copper ring through their tails and threw them back into the sea. Some months later, on the coast of Syria, I caught some of my fish ornamented with the ring. 
Thus the communication between the two was proved. I then saw for it with my Nautilus. I discovered it, ventured into it, and before long, sir, you two have passed through my Arabian tunnel.